Welcome to Musitations, Sound Healing and Sound Wisdom for a World in Need. On Musitations, we explore all things musical, meditative, and creative for healing, transformation, and awakening the relationship between nature, culture, and the soul. I'm Michael Branty Maria, and I'm your host and guide on this journey on the edge of a new millennium. I bring my 30 plus years of experience as an integrative wellness guide, best selling author, meditation, yoga, mindfulness teacher, and a four time Grammy nominated musician. Join me now on this adventure of awakening the soul. Welcome to another episode of Musitations. It's so great to have you here, and we're in for a real treat. I have been wanting to have Rachel Corbett on my show for a couple years now, ever since I read her amazing book, You Must Change Your Life, the story of Rainer Maria Rilke and Auguste Rodin. It just rocked my world, I just have to tell you. It rocked my world so much, I had to reach out to Rachel, and I wasn't sure I'd hear back, and she so graciously responded. It, it just took me on such an extraordinary journey. And I also want to mention this book won the 2016 Marfield Prize, which is a national award for arts writing. Now, some of you may not know the Marfield Prize, but it's up there with the Pulitzer Prize. This is an extraordinary, um, huge, you know, accomplishment, particularly because it's Rachel's first book. Although she's an accomplished writer and journalist, she's written for the New Yorker, the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic and many other publications. And she also lives in Brooklyn, which I feel a strong connection to since my father immigrated to this country after the Second World War. He lived in Brooklyn for 10 years. And so it has a warm place in my heart. And she's joining us here from Brooklyn. And I'm thrilled to have you here, Rachel. Welcome. Thank you so much. That's so nice to hear. Way too many compliments. I really <laughs> well, truly, I, you know, I have such an appreciation for the power of story. And, you know, I, I did look a little bit, you know, I know you're a very accomplished journalist and do a lot of arts writing and, you know, have been an editor in chief and these, the different in the art world. And, and also I, I just, know though that what you brought to this book transcends journalism you, you brought a journalist's eye to detail and historical accuracy but the one i think one reviewer said on the book that th this was a beautifully empathic and intelligent you know um book about this this period of time that's so rich and I, I really felt that, that, that you brought a, an artist's eye, a novelist's eye, a filmmaker's eye, bringing this story to life. So, so again, congratulations on the Marfield Prize and for being here. And I guess it might be a good place to start because I mentioned uh, to you and I've mentioned to our listeners, musitations means all the muses you know, all the muses in every avenue of creative expression. And so here we have Rodin the sculptor, Rilke the poet, and you uh, the writer. 
And I'm curious what drew you to this story, maybe to share a little bit of the backstory for those who may not know a bit about what this story is about. Yeah, so they actually intertwine a little bit because um, I came into reading Rilke first. Um, I think I was like 18 and my mother gave me a copy of Letters to a Young Poet, which is the book that so many people read first of all his work. Um, he was in fact very young, 23 or so when he was writing it. So it, it connects to that age very perfectly, at least to, to people who feel that they have some kind of creative calling or they're kind of lost, but they know there is something they want to do out there that's different. And um, so for me, it was perfect because I was just out of high school and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I lived in Iowa. I knew I didn't want to stay there, but I didn't know where to go. Um, and this book was just a total revelation for me. Um, I read it. It's, you know, it's a very small book. I read it all the way through and then I started it over and read it again. And he doesn't really give any practical advice, but he is inspiring. He, he makes you feel like you don't need anything. You don't need money. You don't need people around you. You could, everything you need to be an artist is already within you. And so for people who are struggling, it's really a, a major affirmation. So um, then, you know, later I moved to New York, I, I became a writer and kind of, you know, put that book aside for many years. And then uh, I, I worked in the art world. I was um, editing art magazines, as you mentioned, and writing about art primarily. And I um, just read somewhere randomly kind of that Rodin was um, living in Paris and he hired Rilke to work as his secretary. And it, it kind of blew my mind. It seemed very dissonant. Like these people didn't seem to fit together to me. And I was so surprised that they knew each other. And then I, I looked into it a bit more. It turns out not only was he his secretary, but they were very, very close. And in fact, a lot of what Rilke was writing in Letters to Young Poet was wisdom that came from his time with Rodin. And it was, you know, and I saw like, maybe that's why it seemed so wise beyond its years a little mm -hmm. bit. So that's, so as I discovered their relationship, I discovered the book I wanted to write in, in, at the same time. This period of time where we are coming of age and trying to find our way in the world. In particular, I, I tell people all the time as, as an artist myself, that our culture does not support art and artists for the most part. You know, that's a very, when you, especially when you have that calling and the need or desire for mentors and, and what I'd even say, having an artist kind of bless your journey or bless you know where you're going and this struggle between solitude and family and love and your art and how what do you give to your family what do you give in and these two have so many different things i think you know i, I think you mentioned I me mean, rodan was what i guess in his 60s early 60s roca was in his 20s and he was playing that role for him. And, and that comes to that period of time when he's like, he's looking, you know, he's, how should I live? I think there's that moment where he writes Rodin 
And I thought that was so sweet that here he's working for him, but he writes him a letter. Why don't you share what Rodin's reaction was to how should I live? And let's see where that takes us. Um, so, right, as you mentioned, Rilke wrote this letter, um, you know, ask, you know, sort of saying, I'm gonna come visit you and, and I'm so moved by your work and I can't wait to study under you and see these sculptures in person. And, but also I wanna ask you, you know, how should I live? Because for him, this was actually a question he'd been pursuing for a long time. He always sought mentors. He, you know, even before Rodin, he sought um, Andrea Salome and um, George Simmel and, and others. So he, he, it was, it wasn't so much affirmation of his work. He wasn't saying, read my poetry and tell me if it's good or not. It was that he felt that there was some fundamental interplay between um, the creative process and the creative life that they were, you know, they had to be merged. You couldn't just work and then go home and live like a normal person and cook dinner. And so, um, so he asked Rodin this question and Rodin kind of answered it over time. He kind of revealed his answer over a period of months that they spent together. Um, and Rilke draws the conclusion that his for Rodin, the way to live is to work, always work. <laughs> that's how, that's what he would say, like a mantra almost repeatedly, that um, life should be in service of work. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're working and then when you're not working, you are creating, you live in an environment that is best suited <laughs> to keep your work. You know, the, the walls should be painted the right color and the windows so that you can, um, you can sort of, see properly at all times and the chairs shouldn't have cushions because you should be a little bit uncomfortable all the time. You should always be alert and ready to, you know, never totally outside of the realm of work at some level, you know, never totally relaxed at least. Um, and this I think was pretty profound for Rilke. He, I, I think he took it to heart and of course he already had, um, he'd already lived that way, he already lived in total service to poetry. So it wasn't a big lifestyle change, I don't think, but it was, it did kind of justify and give him courage to continue moving forward. And also on the on a less positive note, it kind of allowed him to, you know, uh, negate his duties as a father and a husband. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I love that. And that was definitely what that would have been my father's mantra too. you know, uh, uh, I'm not sure I would pronounce the French right with travailler, toujours travailler, you know, that, the, yeah, so that work always work, you know, that sense of the strong work ethic. And I, I think there's that moment when you mentioned, you know, although yes, Rook always had a strong work ethic, it gave him, I guess, the action, you know, to be more action oriented being so much more of a dreamer and living on that inner plane and that 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 gave him um well here i, I think actually there's i think i have a a quote of yours here um you know that it seemed to contradict this mantra of work always work contradicted everything Rilke had learned about the fusion of of life and art but the poet had spent years watching the clouds anxiously awaiting a muse that never came Rodin's example gave him permission to act. Now to work was to live without waiting. I, that like that like gets me emotional. I think he he was always 
very interested in the idea of a muse and the idea that something would be he needed to receive something from somewhere else or someone else that he didn't for some reason he didn't have it on his own um i think that's why he sought out all of these other people uh, it's why i think he describes all of his great works being sort of divine to him by an angel or just walking and having it strike him you know he never talks about sitting there and working hard but of course he did that's what i think that whether he ever really talked about it he didn't a lot but i think rodan did did propel him to sit and work and to start small you know describing simple things and then bigger things and then moving into the realm of love and death and <laughs> emotions and um but it took you know uh, there's a big gap between the idea of what you can do and and um, actually achieving it. And I think for so many people, like you said, it's uh, they just feel paralyzed by the idea and never never get it done. Um, but I, but even though I think Rilke did did embrace the the sort of labor of, it, of poetry, um, even till his death, he described it as if it was just given to him and he was just a vessel, <laughs> just kind of. A yeah, no, that's so beautiful, and and I. I, that sense of having someone both blessing his journey and also, yeah, the thing poems, you know, to start small um, and and to deepen out of that um, is, I think, was just revolutionary for him and helped him craft or deepen his art of seeing. And it makes me, that to me is another a beautiful moment where, you know, I think that he, well, he talked, I think even Lou called it his turning. And when he said, after doing all the thing poems, after kind of focusing on, on the animals and the, 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 the things, almost sculpting with words in his poetry, the way he saw Rodin dream with his hands. That's another phrase I love, that dreaming with his hands that he says the work of the eyes is done now go and do hard work and you 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 bring such empathy to the people you write about and you bring up that too as being kind of a new word that was being coined at this turning of the century turning of the ages and the power importance and how empathy paid played a part for them and for you in writing the book. Yeah, it's so interesting because at the time I was writing it, empathy was this kind of buzzword in culture. I, I don't know, it was, I mean, I mean, it's it's ridiculous to say in a way, but someone was like, someone once told me, empathy is the new black, it's really popular. And there are all these books about empathy. It was, <laughs> it was, you know, it was, it was a period when people were going more online and feeling like we were losing connections to others. And I think there was this desire to kind of reclaim our connections to people. Um, that's kind of just a coincidence. It's not why I wrote this book, but it's something I've always been very interested in. And so when I found that um, empathy is actually a term that, that originated in art history or in aesthetic philosophy um, and that it coincided almost exactly with this sort of, with, with um, 
Rodan and Rilke's evolutions, you know, this was, it wasn't just an idea that was kind of buried in some philosophy building. It was really a current in the, in the art scene at that time in literature and visual art, everything. So, um, and Rilke studied at the, uh, in Munich University there. And this was where some of those main, the main professors researching this early iteration of empathy, which is very different from what we, we know it to me today. Um, he would have taken classes with some of these people. So he probably was right on the cusp of it. And, and interestingly, as it, well, I'll tell you first what it, what it was then, which was, um, it was called Einfühlung, which is uh, German for literally it's in feeling. Yes, um, yes. Um, it was not exactly like empathy today. It was, it was used to describe how, how we feel physically stirred or emotional from seeing a work of art. Like when a dancer leaps on stage and you kind of, you know, get this rush for her, or, you know, and then or why a painting makes you want to cry, uh, and it was trying to figure out that interplay between a work of art and a personal human emotion. And then over time, um, Freud and psychiatrists um, started to think, well, if this connects a person to an object, maybe this is also what connects people to other people, and so um, it became. Empathy became a, a term of psychology and interpersonal relationships. Uh, and, and also, I think at that time, interestingly, I don't know that Rilke was aware of all these kind of evolutions in psychology, but um, when he came around to doing, say, that heartwork poem, it does, that is about when it became an emotion between people. When, when in psychology, empathy became much more commonly understood as you know, the thing we know it today to be. And so when he's talking about heart work, he's talking about his own kind of how he had sort of been bereft his whole life of, of connections with, you know, certain loved ones with women. He had relationships, but they never lasted. And his own daughter, he had kind of abandoned. And I think he was getting older and starting to think more and more about human, real human connections, love, heart work. Mm. That's beautiful. And, and I, trying to remember the the phrase you used but that here he had been doing work always work and he had been working himself to death and and there's the moment he kind of looks back and realizes well Rodin yeah sure he worked but he was yeah yeah he was stoic but he was also an epicure he was also a sensualist he, he didn't deny himself much you know and in that you you mentioned and again I'm, I'm paraphrasing but that he had denied himself some of the most sacred joys of living a life and i guess i mean this is the perennial question you know the to what what we sacrifice for our work or what we sacrifice in human relationships and giving birth to this larger gift and how our our personal relationships may may suffer from that you know, I've always been one to try to seek balance in both art and relationships and see that, you know, how they kind of intertwine. And if, if the art isn't also feeding these other, this other ecosystem of relationships, you know, the dangers that can come into that, which is, you know, and I share with you before we started was, you know, I did this paper on Rilke and Rodin at a creativity and madness conference. And 
you know, you bring up times where, well, Camille Claudel ends up, you know, also as a, a very passionate, gifted artist who struggles with madness when she isn't able to become a legitimate partner to Rodin. And then, you know, Rilke is at times struggling with madness. And I love even when, when you know, you know, Lou, his mentor and informal therapist, his life becomes a psychoanalyst, you know, through Freud. And there's that moment that you paint so beautifully in the book where she actually, you know, he's, he's just not happy and he's going a little mad and she's like, well, maybe you should go, right. You know, maybe you should go have some psychoanalysis. And then, and then she says, no, 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 no. Perhaps you need a little madness to push you through to the rest of the elegies. So I, I, I'm not even sure if I'm asking a question, but I would love for you to respond to your own thoughts about this, both in terms of everyone you wrote about in this particular journey, but because you're immersed in this world of art and artists, and I'm sure you see the good, the bad, the ugly, <laughs> you know, all of that. I think it's so interesting. Um, at that time, yeah, there was the feeling that psychoanalysis would, would cure you of um, the demons, but would also take away your creativity, which I guess the demons had some role. <laughs> right. In in producing um and that's it seems very you know very antiquated to me now of course sure. uh, i i think also at the time psychoanalysis was very different too it was really more of a creative i mean there was not really proper training there was but you know it was all over they weren't sure what they were doing <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know on the other hand i think it could have been really interesting for real to, to just you know just explore his mind I, yes uh, he really agonized about whether to do it. You know, he, he spent some days, he wrote letters to Lou and thought about it and backed out and thought, you know. Um, but I think he agreed, yeah, that ultimately he needs a little madness. It reminds me, uh, and, and partly because, you know, I'm also retired from 30 years plus working as a Jungian-oriented psychologist. And so that whole world of how... Um, and, and I think, you know, this would take us far afield, but I, I mean, I'm actually in complete agreement with you that I, I feel the, in fact, I just, we just had a performance of the play Red, which is, you know, the play about Rothko and, you know, it just, and the famous pieces he was going to have at the Four Seasons restaurant. And it, it's really, it paints, unfortunately, kind of this. He was a terrible alcoholic, you know, and that, and I think that maybe that's part of that, even that, uh, and although we might think of it as kind of a, of a, you know, romantic idea of, you know, this creativity and madness, I do think what happens so often is the, you know, this inflation of the ego or this, this sense of, you know, that one, uh, has to be a little mad to create something new. And, and I do think that's antiquated and I do think that's not accurate, but I also feel like in particularly in our particular culture, the, in fact, sometimes I feel like I would like to rename this podcast, love, death and madness, <laughs> which yes. probably, it would probably get a lot more listeners actually. So I, I'm, I'm seriously thinking of it actually, because I think in our culture, it's, a conversation with death, conversation with madness as simply 
the parts of us, um, the way I talk about it in my work is that the ego is a child of society and the soul is a child of nature. So from that standpoint, the soul, and when I say soul, I'm not meaning any religious context, but, but that deep essential essence of who we are before we become languaged beings, like because then we become part and parcel and domesticated within a particular time, historical epoch, and, and all of those things which become filters on what truly is possible. And so for me, so much of what I try to do when I'm helping people embrace their creativity is unlearn, you know, what they've been taught or be able to get to this place of more, I was, I actually read your, your piece on, is it Joan, um, the performance artist? Oh, uh, Joan Jan, Janice? Joan Jonas. Jonas, Joan, Joan Jonas. That, and so that's, I love this place of improvisation for that reason. And to try to, you know, always be, keep those things that are fresh. And from that standpoint, I think actually she was talking about needing to stay healthy for a performance and being in good condition. And so I, I really have that sense in which, um, what we think of as madness, which some people, I, well, this is, this is actually both a title of this book, witness to the fire and Jung's basic message when you're going to create, create something or bring something new into the world, it does erode all of your certainties and that can make you feel mad. And addiction, all addictions, whether that's alcohol, drugs, or work, I mean, work can be an addiction, is actually addressing the right problem in the wrong way, meaning that we're, we're all seeking transcendence of this burdensome ego consciousness where we're living in this filtered reality that feels pretty boring. But when we find ways, which is what partly for me what art does, is it lifts those, those filters off so we can see more the, the, the sheer mystery of just being that artists and poets. And whenever we're also, I think we all have opportunities to this when we're kind of just about to drift off to sleep or just about waking up or in our dream world or when we are inspired or when we're in love or maybe when we're a little half mad or maybe when we're dealing with the death of a loved one it shears that stuff away and i have a feeling that's part of what when artists like Rilke and rodan um because they love living on the edge well you said so many things that I, that resonate and um put them much better than i could have but um the one thing that remind that struck me is um, when you're talking about, you know, madness is, could be mental illness or addiction, but sure. it could also be, you know, in a broader term, just a, a different way of seeing the world. You yes. Know, yes. The world the way most people do, you could call that madness. In various periods, we have called that madness. So I think um, that's probably what artists want to protect is. is mm their way of seeing the world and what Rilke was when he was protecting himself from psychoanalysis. Um, but also you said something about, you know, um, you know, stripping away the, uh, all of the layers of society that are, you know, that have been crusted upon us. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I think that was one of the major projects um, of this period that Rilke spent with Rodin because Rodin would always tell him that, you know, 
to say to say um before you look at a woman let's say a figure of a woman you have to start with like this tiny little shell or a tiny little leaf and learn to see that so fully like go into the leaf until you feel the leaf growing within you mm. and then you know write write it right write where it needs to be a leaf or or you know draw it and then you can move on to a snail <laughs> maybe or on to the next thing and that everything is just a building apart but when you look fresh when you look at a leaf like with pure eyes and pure in, in wonderment you will really learn to see mm. i think that's what they were kind of trying to do was go back to that original um all like vision of a, of a child Yes, yes, that's I mean, I think of William Blake and and the the music education that changed my life was uh, with uh, the cellist David Darling, who was an extraordinary classical jazz and you know, for lack of a better word, even though he didn't like the phrase new age um, musician. and I did this this four year apprenticeship with him uh, called Music for People, which was actually learning to the whole message of that apprenticeship was returned to child and 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 begin to play again the way you did as a child you know and and i remember actually you you described i don't know if you were saying it or rilke was describing rodin with amongst his his sculptures and his work as a, a child amongst his toys yeah and that's how i am when i have my you know when i'm around my i call them my babies actually my my uh, instruments and <laughs> it's that it's very similar to that delight of a child and yeah to seeing uh, as as Blake would say as things that, as they truly are as infinite and and that there is everything's a fractal of that infinite process that whatever it is that we're swimming in this this mystery so so that's and and you really brought that you know to the the table with that. I, and I do have to ask, unless you want to respond to anything else, how has, you know, writing this book changed you? You know, you must change your life. And I'm just curious if you have any response to that. Um, I felt that I was going along this, I felt that I was discovering everything that Rilke was discovering through his eyes. I, I feel like in a way I was on the same journey because mm. um, I didn't know anything about this relationship. I didn't, I, I, and I really wanted to trace how he became one from one person to another. And I, I just, I wanted to really try to figure out as many points of turning as I could and as many revelations as I always want to chart how someone becomes the way they are. And, um, so for me, it was, I was sort of taking these lessons along with him. And although I didn't go to the zoo and sketch gazelles and panthers in the same way he did, I was um, imagining, I was putting myself there trying to, to write it, to make the scene. And, and I felt in a way that I was living through it a little bit. And I, it's so rare that you can see an artist's process really uh, as closely as you could with Rilke because he documented everything. You know, he wrote thousands of letters and he in journals and 
you know, he was one of these writers who thought through writing, you know, he, he got the sense, his letters um, mirror poems that were published later. Like he, every letter he was working out an idea for a poem. Mm. Uh, so I felt like I really had this inner look and that I, uh, that I could also, I think it helped me look a little bit slower too uh, and appreciate work in a different way. And I, I always liked Rodin, you know, I, I, he's, he's I, I, the work is just so impactful when you see it, I think for anybody, most people, but I didn't, I didn't think about it that much. I didn't have the kind of appreciation that I now have. I just, now I, now I love it. I, you know, I, and I, and every, every time you go see his work, you're in the, in the museum mm. where he made it, mm. the home that, that they made together. And you really feel like you're in his milieu, in his space and how it was meant to be. And that has so much more meaning knowing that he was carefully curating his space in every way that had to do with the, with the work as well. So anyway, um, I guess I feel, I just feel like I went on this journey and although my, I, I was less concerned with how to live my life <laughs> at this point, um, I think it was mostly just, just revelation after revelation. I mean, just the empathy, I, I, I just live for this stuff, the, mm. the, the making a connection, um, between art and psychology, that's a, that's a nexus I always love, and that it's to find it so literally connected in this way. Mm. Um, I think it was more just a process. It, it, I, I never quite felt so happy to go to the library every day and immerse myself in this world. It was really a pleasure, and writing is often not at all a pleasure. <laughs> it's often so. Um, oh, that's beautiful, and it comes across. I mean, I I always even when I'm trying to decide on, you know, my next project, it's if I'm following my interest, my, my experiences, if I'm having a good time, then the people who are experiencing my art or, or writing are having a good time. And, and, and that, that passion and joy came through. I mean, I, I think that I was like, it, and, and so are there any plans for screenplay? <laughs> I know I would love to have a screenplay. I mean, this this book was also a first for me in terms of I write journalism, as you mentioned. So I I write factually and not in nonfiction, um, but I've never written a history like this mm -hmm. before. And now I've kind of I am um, now I'm much more interested in writing maybe another you know, another book of history. But um, the screenplay uh, I would love if you're interested. <laughs> no, um, no, no. I'm I actually I'm I'm I am interested. There's a few stories that I have found as compelling and because it's also you have this incredible period of time too which to me is actually as we're coming into this strange period of the end of another century and the other you know we have no idea where we're going but i i'm very interested in these turning points and you paint that so powerfully but part of my fascination is too because it informs us kind of with where we're going I, I saw there's something about both of them that that touch something I think more archetypal and essential in you know this would take us far far afield but you know where I see the necessity of creativity and art going if we are going to survive as a species 
you know, it's like, you know, the crisis and not just culture, but nature and our, the relationship between culture and nature. And there's something about both of these men, their story, and also those who they were surrounded by, who were weaving to me, for lack of a better word, I think of as this mysterious intertwining of nature and culture which to me is most beautifully expressed in creativity. And, and so there's something, I don't know, it, it, the book actually gave me hope too, in a weird sort of way about, like even it's made me question the deepest part of my own work. Like what am I trying to say? I mean, I, and I, I probably get choked up here, but the, I think one of the themes throughout was the value of truth over beauty even. You know, but a truth that doesn't abandon beauty, but this, what I think of as deeper beauty, the beauty of, again, for lack of a better word, the soul. And I don't know, they both, and they both were lovers. I mean, you have to give that to me. Yeah, so they really screwed up some relationships, but you can't deny that both of these men loved the women that inspired them and were, I think, is tragically struggling with the relationship between, and maybe this is, a, you know, an interesting place to, to, to land here. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but this is, this is like one of my mantras from Rilke, from the, the letters to, 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 to bring that circle around. True lovers are the keepers of each other's solitude, you know, and, and this support of, of allowing each of us to become the world that we are and and not merge but also not abandon and and how do we and i think that has everything to do with also how we we live with 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 nature and animals and trees and you know so i can wax pretty poetic about like the larger the larger picture that that their stories and you're bringing that story to me. I mean, I'm sitting with this question of you must change your life quite personally ever since I've read the book. It's always there for me, but you know, particularly since I, you know, retired my psych practice and hundred percent focused on my art and writing right now. And, um, and so, so yeah, so I, I want to thank you again for that and just any thoughts about any of that, if any of that touches a chord for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the nature aspect is really interesting and I think you've identified something very important in all of this. And I think what's interesting is that you, you say, you know, truth, especially Rodin would talk about this, mm -hmm. truth is more important than beauty. You know, you, know, you don't go after a, you know, the most beautiful woman to sculpt, it might be the ugly janitor that you sculpt. Yes, yes. But it's real. And I think he, I think truth to him was kind of nature. Nature mm. was baseline. Nature was what was first. And, and therefore, it was always going to be the most beautiful. Artists were only, you know, students to, to nature. We were always just trying to emulate the, the beauty of nature. And so um, if it's the, you know, if it's the leaf or it's the way the man's the janitor's face looks and it's broken nose and whatever else, 
that was natural and artists were always adding, you know, flourishes and trying to beautify things. And so for Rodin, he was steadfast that um, nature was art of the highest order. And mm. we as humans could only, only try to achieve, you know, anything like that. And that was truth at the same time. Mm. So I think that's important. It's something I can think about more and and also just that the women that you mentioned um it's not to say Rilke had you know complicated relationships i think he broke some hearts along the way in his life but he chose women who were extremely intelligent and inspiring and that he obviously valued for their their minds and they were often collaborators um so more so than rodan did but i think that that was he was always seeking that collaboration for as much as he thought he needed to lock him up lock himself up in like a, a cave or you know <laughs> a castle on the adriatic or whatever who, who really did value you know closeness to a point closeness with solitude yes which i that's beautiful and i you know i and i don't know if i'm wanting to think it's probably more uh, buber or kierkegaard but the deeper your solitude the deeper your communion and togetherness and i love that and, and i think that that Rilke would agree with that and, and it seems like such a paradox but it's it's so true i mean it's so true and yeah yeah i describe myself as an outgoing introvert i'm such an introvert but, <laughs> but when i'm with other introverts talking about what's important to me you know i just can I can, well, as you see already, I can be a chatterbox uh, when, when it's something that really matters to me, which, which Jung said, you know, he said, loneliness is not being alone. It's not being able to share and talk about what's important to you, mm -hmm. which is really beautiful. And I love what Rilke said about loneliness, which is that it's just space expanding around you. <laughs> yes. No, I actually have that quote here. I, I was, you know, that think of it as vastness. Yeah, you know, and, <laughs> you can, and I, you just expand that much more. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really, really beautiful. Um, well, we could we could talk, I think, for a few more hours, but I know you have. Uh, we both have some things coming up, but I I wanted to give you a chance before we finish. I think that was a beautiful place to land, um, just to let people know if they're interested in 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 finding out more about your writing, finding out about the book um, and you know being i want to tell everyone who's listening out there to buy this book and read it it's just it's for anybody who uh, is looking for how to live more deeply more fully and uh i just hi i couldn't recommend it more enough it's one of my favorite reads it's i think it's in my top five books now you know i mean it's just it's and I read thousands and thousands. I just, I just, uh, I adore this book. So I hope everyone out there gets a chance to experience it. But in terms of where it's available, and also if people wanted to find out more about some of your writing, I, I have a lot of artists and musicians that tune in. That I mean, creatives are kind of my demographic. So yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, that's just I'm over the moon. You've met you. You've made me feel so good with all these, with all these, uh, all this praise, and I um I'm really grateful that you found something in it, um and I hope other people do too. I'm um 
it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a, I, my publisher is Norton and, you know, you can get it anywhere online. Um, I have a website too. It's rachel-corbett.com. So that's, that's just kind of a, an archive for everything I've done, you know, which is a lot of art, but also completely different things, healthcare, politics, crime every now and then. So, you know, something for everyone, I hope, <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I don't know what else to say. Is there a, is there a new book in the works? There Even is. if it, yeah, what's what's going there, on there? I'm, I'm doggedly trying to finish it now. It's due in like two weeks here. <laughs> oh, bless your heart! Wow, um, well, very different. It's very different. It's about a, it's a kind of history of crime, certain mm. certain facets of crime, and how how um, how what scares a society, what, what, what criminals look like in a given society says about the society itself. And, and criminals change, but the fears and we're afraid of um, kind of stay the same, but. No, no, that's it. And especially, I mean, I, I did a lot of, you know, forensic psychology early on in my career and, oh my gosh, you know, interviewing uh, in high security prisons, you know, and it was, in testified in over a hundred cases. So I, I very, yeah, yeah. So maybe that's another conversation. For us I know. But, but, but that boundary between again, society and what we, the, the margins of society, you know, um, yeah. Like I'm a big Mich Michelle Foucault fan who were both, both in terms of the prison and, and the history of madness and the history of the quote criminal or crime and, and prisoner and power structures and all of that. It's just, it's really important work. It really is. Um, but uh, I just want to thank you, Rachel, for being here. I'm so thrilled that you were open to doing this. And I'm so grateful you wrote this book. And I'm sure we'll have more creative conversations. And we might have to have you back on another time to talk about the muse of crime. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for being here. And we all wish you the very best with this new book as well. Does it have a title yet? No, I kind of do those at the end. Yeah, no, I know it's it's so true. I same thing. My I, whenever I try to title an album, it's it always changes by the end. So really, it's just a working title. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Except with this book, I have to say that that Rilke line, "You must change you your must life." Change your life. That was so striking to me. I didn't really have to do the title, but. Yeah, it it literally leaped off the the page when I saw. I was like, I have to get this. I was so thrilled. I was like, really? Somebody's written a book about this. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was such a treat. So, well, we wish you well in everything, and we will. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. And we'll see you next time on Musitations. You've been listening to Musitations sound healing and sound wisdom for a world in need where we explore all things musical meditative and creative for healing transformation and awakening the soul i've been your guide and host michael brant de maria feel free to check out my music on pandora amazon music spotify xm cirrus radio or soundscapes cable you can also check out my website at michaeldemaria.com or online programs at alldaypeace.com, alldaypeace.com. Listen 
to your heart. Follow your soul, and we'll see you on the next episode of Musitations. <laughs>